Welcome to our Good Friday service. At the end of our service, we're gonna be taking communion together. And I would invite you, whether you're by yourself or maybe with a group, to go get elements to take at the end of the service. You can find bread, crackers, juice. If you don't have juice, any kind of drink would do. And have that ready for the end of the service. Welcome to our Good Friday service. In a few days, we will celebrate Easter. Uh, we'll talk about hope. We'll talk about the resurrection, uh, new beginnings, alive. It's a day that millions around the world will celebrate as the cornerstone of their faith. For followers of Jesus, there is simply no better day. But before there was hope, there was doubt. Before healing, there were wounds. Before life, there must be a life given. Before there was Sunday, there was Friday. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 49. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and all the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out, away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. 
he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they followed him, a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do th these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned beating their breasts and his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. When we've read a passage like that, I wonder if the correct response should be silence. It's almost jarring to see the majesty of Jesus that outshines the, the ugliness, his, his gentleness that overcomes the, the gross hatred and violence. But, but one thing often gets in the way of us seeing this clearly. Over the centuries, We've, we've sanitized, we've, we've beautified the cross. And I wonder if we've covered too many crosses in gold to see this one clearly. 
See, when we look back at Jesus's cross through sort of the theological glasses or lenses of, of victory, of salvation, it may be that we no longer see the, the horror, the evil, the, the overwhelming pain, really the shame of the cross. You know, think about it today, crosses decorate churches, uh, homes, uh, windows, the necks of, of ladies. Now imagine someone asking a jeweler to make a gold image of, of gallows and then asking him to add a little miniature man dangling from the gallows. Would you buy that for your daughter to wear? Or imagine church roofs decorated with uh, huge symbolic electric chairs. And some churches even light them up with flashing neon lights. The point is, it's so easy for us to forget the cross was an instrument of torture and of execution. Now, I use the past tense was an instrument of torture and execution because it was actually outlawed later by the Romans for being too barbaric. Now, think about that. The nation that enjoyed watching lions tear criminals apart banned a crucifixion. It was, it was too painful, too crude, too shameful, too excruciating even to watch. Actually, did you know that the word excruciating had to be invented to describe the torture of crucifixion? The word itself, excruciating, comes from the Latin ex, meaning out of, and crucare, literally meaning the cross. Excruciating means out of the cross. Roman citizens actually could not be crucified. As a kindness, they, they were uh, normally allowed suicide. Uh, and even most non-citizens couldn't be crucified. They were allowed kinder executions, such as uh, strangling, uh, slitting their throats, death by gladiator or wild animals. It was only slaves and the worst of criminals that could be crucified. And it was as a warning. And it was the ultimate warning to others. Nothing was worth dying for this way. Rome contained far more slaves than they did citizens. And yet they didn't revolt in mass. And Rome, controlled by relatively few soldiers, was surrounded by enemy nations, but they didn't revolt because no one wanted to risk crucifixion. And for the Jews, there was an extra horror of crucifixion. And that was in the open shame of this particular torture. See, victims were always stripped naked. It was actually Christian artists who felt they uh, had to add a loincloth to images of Jesus later. Now, Jesus was by no means the only crucified Jew. He was one of three on that day. The translation criminal, it's actually a bit misleading. Crucifixion was reserved only for the most evil and Barabbas who was let off must have been the least dangerous of the three. And he was charged with murder and insurrection, a, even worse crime in the Roman eyes. We also know of two mass crucifixions in Jerusalem. In 267 BC, 800 Pharisees were crucified as traitors. And in AD 70, anyone escaping the siege of Jerusalem was also crucified. Historians tell us as many as 500 a day. But although Jesus' crucifixion, it wasn't unique, being flogged, or as they called it, the halfway death, before, that probably was unique. 
Flogging did the, the maximum damage without actually killing the victim. Pieces of metal tied to the whip thongs tore gouges out of the back. And according to John, Pilate hoped to appease the crowd who called for crucifixion. Luke actually doesn't tell us about this flogging, but he hints at it because he says that Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for Jesus. But this punishment didn't work. The crowd wasn't appeased. So Jesus ended up with this uniquely double punishment. To the Hebrew mind, and, and we see this in the Old Testament, there was an added way to show that a crime was utterly heinous. You executed someone, and then you hung their body on a tree instead of giving it a proper burial. You, you were, may, uh, may remember King Saul, his death in the Old Testament. After the Israelites' battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, the bodies of King Saul and three of his sons, they were hung on the walls of Beit Shan. In the Jewish mind, hanging a body versus, versus burial, it signified in some way that they were especially cursed by God. And the Jewish leaders would have used this to say God had cursed Jesus. But Christian preachers like we see the Apostle Paul actually turned this around by, by agreeing with it. They said, yes, Jesus accepted God's curse on behalf of of humanity. In fact, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Theologians also managed to give Jesus' death honor by calling it a sacrifice. Now, of course, everyone knew that it was nothing like a temple sacrifice. Temple animals had to be killed as, as cleanly, as quickly, as painlessly as possible. And sacrifices were eaten, though some were burnt, but certainly they were, they were never buried. But this metaphor did help believers come to terms with Jesus's horrific death, with his shameful death. Now, given all this, it's not surprising that the early Christians didn't use the symbol of the cross. In fact, in the catacombs, these, these tombs where, where Christians would hide from persecution, we see images, lots of images painted of Jesus. Uh, Jesus as the good shepherd, uh, Jesus as the fisher of men, or, or, or eating with his disciples, sometimes sitting in glory. We never see him crucified. For early Christians who, who, had, who had seen crucifixion, the horrors of it firsthand, this was too real to contemplate. There's only one picture of the crucifixion which survived from the first 300 years after Jesus's crucifixion. You can, in fact, you can see it in the Forum Museum near the Colosseum in, in Rome. It's, it's crudely scratched, it's kind of just graffiti, but it's done on a plaster wall, probably from around AD 200. And it depicts a crucified man with the head of a donkey and there's another man looking on, and the caption under it reads, Alexamenos worships his God. It was graffiti mocking this Christian man, Alexamenos, for his faith in following a crucified Jesus. This shows how scandalous, how, how shameful the cross continued to be. In fact, for most early skeptics, 
Crucifixion, it was the clinching argument against Christianity being valid or being in any way respectable. But all of this changed in the 300s when, when the Roman Emperor Constantine, who, who had himself become a Christian, right before a critical battle, he claimed to miraculously see this cross up in the sky with the message, in this sign, conquer. After that, they, they put crosses on their clothing, on their battle armor, and the cross was sanitized. The blood, the feces, Yes, victims normally hung there for days. They still had to relieve themselves. The scrapes of skin, they were all cleaned off. And now we have gold crosses encrusted with jewels or huge concrete crosses. We draw crosses on, on church walls, on, on letterhead, even on babies' heads with water, depending on, on your denomination. And we wear it as a religious statement or merely as a decorative jewelry. I remember reading an interview with the famous female musician, I'll, I'll leave her unnamed, not a believer, who was asked by the interviewer, why do you wear a crucifix around her neck? Her response was, I think it's sexy to have a naked man hanging around my neck. Remember, it's for these who Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The church owns the rights to the most distinctive logo ever invented. But all this means that it's easy for us to forget what it really represents. And see, here's the thing. There's something even more disgusting that was on that cross. Paul puts it this way, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. And he set aside, here's, here's the key part, nailing it to the cross. Did you hear what Paul said was nailed to the cross? Your record of debt. I wonder what your most shameful memories are. I know what mine are. But the worst things that you've ever done to yourself, maybe to others, the selfishness, your, your failures, things you're, you're afraid maybe will be found out. Places in your life where there's deep brokenness, things you wish you could be set free of, but things that you worry you'll never get rid of. Your shame, your sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus took all of that and absorbed it in himself on the cross. And now you and I were accepted by God on condition of Jesus' cross. That is the only reason we can attach the word good to this particular Friday. I hope you have your elements as we move into a time of communion. The Apostle Paul used these words speaking about the night before Jesus was betrayed. First Corinthians 11, he writes, for what I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. He goes on to say, in the same way, after he took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup. And then Paul finishes by saying, quoting Jesus, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Jesus says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's what we do. That's what we do this evening. More importantly, that's what we're gonna do on the third day. But for us now, like the disciples then, we wait for the third day to celebrate his resurrection. So I'll see you on the third day.